Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 32, the one about standing out from digital chaos, City Mapper, Circles for Zoom, and The Matrix. Let's get on with the show. And welcome everyone to a brand new episode of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. As always, we're here to keep you up to date on the latest news, tech, content and wisdom from the world of marketing. My co-host, as always, is a man on a mission to demystify digital marketing. He's the host of the Content Marketing Studio video podcast. Please welcome Mr. Pascal Fintoni. Well, thank you so much for this introduction. And can I also thank you for spending some time with me, you, a man on a mission to keep marketing simple, the voice of the Marketing and Finance Podcast and the host of the Rock Video Series. I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards. Oh, Pascal, here we are with episode 32. Episode 32, that's over half a year's worth of marketing wisdom and film marketing. And as always, I think we should go straight into the news. And we begin with entertainment has overtaken FMCG as the best paid sector for marketers according to the 2021 Marketing with Career and Salary Survey where they look at 23 different sectors. Lego has launched video, now you need to check the spelling of that, in partnership with Universal Music, a new app combining Lego elements, music and augmented reality to help children produce their own music videos. Where broadcast television, including live, on-demand and payback services, grew by 5% in 2020. This is an additional 10 minutes of viewing per person every day. Subscription services increased by 11 minutes per day. Companies with emotive brand names such as Red Bull and Apple have the highest average revenue at £70.32 billion, followed by those with invented brand names using words not in the dictionary, like Google. Well, another name not in dictionary is Amazon has opened a checkout free grocery store called Fresh in London with payment taken by a smartphone app giving customers a fast and efficient shopping experience. And Sainsbury's is placing concern for the environment at the centre of its market positioning by changing its slogan to helping everyone eat better, which actually replaces the old live well for less. Google has announced the removal of third-party cookies from its Chrome browsers by 2022, charting a course towards a more privacy-first web, according to official sources. And finally, Virgin Enterprises is suing a US railway company for $251 million after the operator called into questions its brand values by dropping the Virgin name from its trains. So there you go. Sometimes Virgin isn't the epitome of good service. Now, talking about brands with made-up names, I think you might find, Pascal, that the Amazon is actually a river in South South America, which uh, is one of the longest rivers in the world, I, be- I believe. Do you know, you're absolutely right. Uh, completely escaped me. I'm just thinking, well, I'm not, I've never heard of Amazon before, so I'm going to fit that one in. So thank you for correcting me. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, you know, levity aside, though, I often do wonder about these made-up names, you know, Aviva. And, and Google in its time was, you know, it, is it better to go with a made-up name or is it better to go with something that people have got something that they can associate it with like apple i remember when i was working in the financial services industry there was a fairly sizable firm that rebranded they were they were called the the, the network or something at one point and then they re 
branded themselves as sesame. And at the time I was thinking, that means open sesame. It's something to do with the Arabian Nights or sesame seed oil. And I couldn't actually see the connection between what they had become and what they used to be. But sometimes maybe it's a clean sheet. Yes, and, and you know, you know, I spent quite, uh, you know, some time in meetings looking at names for either projects, program, or indeed organizations. And it's not an exercise to be taken lightly, because you know you don't want to have to go back a few months later saying, "Sorry, guys, we've got that wrong. Can you please not get used to this uh, second or third name?" So yes, it takes time to to get it right. But fascinating to, and people want uh, to feel a connection. So you mentioned the emotive brand names like Red Bull and Apple, and and I think it's just simple important to find a way to tap into one's emotions and it is interesting of this u.s company uh, and dropping the virgin name from its branding because it wasn't living up to the promise and I, and I guess that's that's one of the things isn't it if you have a brand which becomes synonymous with a particular level of service or a particular type of product if you lose that positioning, then it can be quite damaging for the brand, as these people have, have demonstrated. On the subject of, of naming and choosing words carefully, what do you make of Sainsbury's, you know, changing the slogan from live well for less to helping everyone eat better? Yeah, I was thinking a lot about this one, and I actually quite liked live well for less, although I guess in some respects, I always think about Asda as the as the cheaper brand, you know, um, Asda price, um, and perhaps the Live Well for Less didn't. I'd always seen Sainsbury's as a slightly more upmarket supermarket than Asda, and well above Lidl and uh, and Aldi, I guess. But uh, helping everyone eat better, I, I guess that's okay. I guess that's okay. I'm. I would personally have stayed with the old one, to be perfectly honest. Um, it, it still implies a similar sort of thing. I guess I, I, I guess the new one is more about the individual thinking about what they're eating, whereas I guess the imp inference in the first one was the was that you want to buy cheap, whereas this one is look after yourself. So may, maybe maybe it's stronger. Maybe it's stronger. Maybe I'll, it'll grow on me. <laughs> Talking of um, you know growing, so. Do you think that's rather daring for Amazon to open a grocery store during a global pandemic in London? Yeah, although I guess that uh, the supermarkets have been the the stores mm. that have managed to stay open. Uh, I mean, you, you could argue. I mean, I, I've read loads of articles about you know the non-essential, and I'm using air quotes for people who aren't watching there. The non-essential stores have had to close because of the pandemic, and I read an article about a florist. Um, on the high street in Edinburgh that has unfortunately gone out of business. And the argument that they were putting forward was with, well, Sainsbury's and Asda and all the aforementioned uh, supermarkets have stayed open and they're selling flowers. Um, so, you know, why is that fair? Now, obviously, you could argue about the transmission of the virus in, an in, in a smaller shop, but there does seem to be something a little bit wrong there. So I, I, I'm not surprised 
Uh, and I'm not surprised that they've done it different and that you, you have a smartphone app and you don't actually have to queue up to check out and it's all done electronically. You would expect that from Amazon. And <laughs> I have to say that the, the few times that I have been to the supermarket over the last couple of months as things have started to open out, the queues have been getting longer. And, oh, really? Uh, oh, there's nothing, there's nothing worse than having to stand in a queue in a supermarket <laughs> waiting for the till, even if it's a self-service till, especially if you're socially distanced and you're snaking up and down the aisles as well. Now, I must say, when I read the uh, the announcement that, you know, the consumption of TV programs, whether it's live, on-demand, or uh, playback, grew by 5%, which is an additional 10 minutes per person per day, I was thinking, well, I'm not sure because I played my part in making sure that, you know, that number went up quite a bit in 2020. 10 minutes feels like very low. So I'm assuming there must have been some people not watching TV much at all. And and they started watching it, you know, a lot in twenty twenty. I mean, would you say your consumption has gone up then, but but by the number of minutes or hours per week? Oh my goodness, our, our consumption of Netflix and <laughs> Amazon Prime is up massively. <clears throat> but I guess it's the old thing about averages, isn't there? For everybody mm. like you and I who's probably watching an extra six hours of TV a week or maybe a day, who knows? There'll also be people who are only watching it for twenty minutes a day. So I guess the averages average out and that extra 10 minutes is probably fueled by a lot of people like us who have increased our <laughs> consumption quite significantly no absolutely so content and that leads us quite nicely into our next section where we shine the spotlight on the content that has grabbed our attention over the last week so pascal time to move on to the content spotlights well, in this part of the show, Pascal and I bring to the table an item of content that's grabbed our attention recently. Now, that could be an article, it could be a video, podcast, webinar, whatever. And the great thing about this part of the show is that neither of us tells the other what it is that we're bringing to the table until right this minute. And therefore, <laughs> it's always a bit of a surprise. So, Pascal, tell us what have you got in store for us this week? So I hope I'm going to surprise you as well as our viewers and listeners with my selection this week. So this is an article for a website called campaignlive.co.uk written by Mike White, who is a CEO and founder, co-founder of Lively. The title is as follows, How Brands Stood Out in the Digital Chaos of Fashion Week. So Fashion Week in London is a yearly event that usually makes the headline is known around the world, Roger. And of course, um, this year they've gone digital. It took place in February. And what was interesting is Mike White was kind of analyzing both what they did to make it obviously an engaging event, but also the lessons that maybe the, the brand that is Fashion Week, but also the organizers can take forward um, when we might still have to go for what we call a hybrid events. So the, um, the Fashion Week historically has been about showcasing innovative work, showcasing the, the, the future around also technology, um, around textile and, and clothing and so on, but also more and more around conversations around what it means to be in a fashion industry, what it means to be a manufacturer of garments in the context of a uh, green agenda as well as, you know, anything to do with sustainability. So 
the article is in, is two halves really. One, it kind of itemizes the key elements of the online experience for Fashion Week, but also it goes into debating a bit more about what it means for the future. So what I'm going to do for the purpose of um, this recording is give you the the item that made the online experience, but would allow people to click on the link to then read what Mike has to say about what it means to event organizers in general. And my kind of uh, take on this, Rogers, about lessons that people can take away for their own industry, even though they may not be working in fashion at all. So as you would expect, the um, the sessions, the show was streamed live and showcasing different designers in kind of beautiful HD with all that kind of production value you would expect. But that wasn't just all. And I think that's probably one the the warning message from Mike Y, which is if you think that going digital just means live streaming, you are missing out on a lot more you could do for your audience where you can extend the experience before as well as after the event. So what they did as well is they offered people access to a playlist on Spotify from artists such as Little Sims and 16 Arlington and many others that I would assume you could hear played during the live streaming. So you could access a Spotify and extend that experience and how you would remember taking part in the live show. TikTok, of course, got involved, providing streaming support, but also TikTok was there to offer mentoring sessions and fashion masterclasses for up-and-coming designers, which I thought was lovely, looking after the, the future designers, so to speak. They also had a podcast dedicated to Fashion Week, where they would also interview the organizers, or interview the participants, and so on, but also have uh, in, in discussions around things outside of um, tr- tr- fashion, such as diversity in in the industry as well as sustainability. They also showcased many films, short films produced by sponsors and the designers. So one of it is um, Vanish, you know Vanish, um, Roger, the um, property, the kind of product that helps you remove old stains. And they had a kind of mini documentary where they asked a fashion designer to show what you could do with three and a half ton of clothing waste. So one of the things that Vanish is uh, is onto is a mission to limit waste and give clothing longer lives as opposed to this kind of very disposable society we've become. So they had a um, essentially a designer sat next to a three and a half ton of waste and it's quite a sight and you kind of realize that you know we should really be careful about this and this film was called the rewear edit and it was just beautifully filmed and it had a very very strong message so it's an article that you can read you know within minutes but one that you know back in the old days if you remember roger of you could do a print and then put it on someone else's desk and say i've read of that and see if i can help you think of ideas for your own shows in future digital shows, but also how you can expand the reach and extend its usefulness beyond just the live streaming. Yeah, this is really interesting stuff, isn't it? And as somebody like you who gets involved in putting on events, um, it has been a conundrum over the last 12 months, hasn't it? Not just how do we make the actual presentations or the, the webinar sessions or the breakout sessions, how do we make them engaging in an online environment using something like Zoom or whatever it is? But quite a lot of events, especially the sort of expo type events, you know, they rely upon you being able to be there to touch things, to interact with things. Maybe you go and go to a stand that, that one of the brand has and they may be giving out uh, free samples and stuff like that. And you, you just can't do that online. And what I like about some of the ideas in this article is that they're trying, aren't they, to in- mm. reintroduce the experience back into 
the experience. Uh, you can tell I didn't script that bit in advance. <laughs> they're, they're trying to reintroduce, you know, the, the, the real world experience into the online experience and it's really tough so any any uh, uh, examples like this that we can that we can take and then either build upon them ourselves or it just sparks an idea elsewhere then you know it's got to be good for the future of uh, of events because you know as the weeks go by and as we crawl slowly towards the lifting of lockdown and and as i'm recording this the first minister of scotland will be telling us in scotland whether we're going to get any more freedom so i'm, I'm that um, that's one of the reasons why after this podcast I'll either be upset or or, um, or elated but you know I think it's it's going to carry on for a long time in the state that we're in at the moment where there'll be a a combination of real life and virtual and therefore we've just got to learn how to make both of those a real experience for the people who are taking part I think you're right, Roger. You know, we must remember that real life events are multifaceted. Mm. There's so many, there's so many elements making it work. And to just live stream what would normally be on the big stage, I think you're missing out on all the other elements. Which is where Fashion Week, I think, has done a, a very good job. And the other lesson for me is, if you want inspiration, you need to look elsewhere. So if you work in the IT industry, if you work in FMCG, or if you work in entertainment, and you want inspiration, look in other sectors. Otherwise, you're just going to be repeating. What, what others are doing and that's why I chose this article I thought it was just a great way to open up the debate and make you imagine events a, a bit differently yeah it's really good stuff shall I tell you about my content More, spotlight for this week okay this is an article from the insider website it's written by Lee Lazarus and Janine Kernoff now it's about email now, I have to admit, Pascal, email isn't my strong point. Um, you know, I send out individual emails, as all businesses do, to my clients, to my contacts, to potential contacts. And I do have an email list as well, which I send out bulletins for my podcast and this, that and the other. It's not the biggest email list in the world, but it's it's adequate for, for, for what I need. But one of, the, one of the frustrating things about email is that you just sometimes don't get any feedback do you now i know that people are absolutely inundated with emails and a lot of it goes straight into the bin without being read um and sometimes you just wonder am i writing the right sort of emails am i crafting the headlines well enough to attract people's attention or am i overthinking it am i going too far and does that equally put people off and and this article just grabbed my attention the heading was five email tips to stop your messages from being ignored according to experts who work with facebook and nestle now again i wondered whether that last bit about according to experts who work with facebook and nestle was a lesson in itself would i have actually clicked on the article had it just said five email tips to stop your messages from being ignored I don't know. That's interesting to think about. But again, Pascal, there's nothing rocket science about any of the uh, five tips. I'm just going to very briefly talk us through. But I think you probably agree that on the Two Geeks in a Marketing podcast, sometimes it's it's well worthwhile being reminded sometimes of the basics. And, and I think that sometimes, you know, we do tend to forget. Email on the whole is the most 
prolific form of communication in the world at the moment still probably higher than messenger and and all of those sort of things maybe not forever but certainly at the moment so tip number one that they're saying is find the right balance between brief and meaningful and this was actually probably the most interesting one of the whole article because the 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 schools of thought isn't that say emails should be super short in fact i think um uh good friend and colleague of ours, Chris Ducker, doesn't he advocate something like the three-line email? Never write That's correct, three yes. lines. Uh-huh. Um, but then on the other side of the coin, there are people who advocate, you know, super long emails. And and I've seen sales emails from America that are about 50 pages long with, you know, free gifts and one, two, three, four, five, and now this and add that. But what this is saying is sometimes too brief can actually be off-putting because you haven't given the reader the context and it's very hard to give the context in a very short email so if there is context to what you're writing it's worth spending a little bit of time and maybe adding a few more sentences or a paragraph or two to the start in order that your point resonates more with the reader so I, I was really quite interested in that that was the one that really made me think do you know that's that's really really interesting number two always have a headline and put that as your subject line and, and what they're basically saying here is that quite a lot of us and you know when i read this i thought god i do this every single time is the subject line of the email i'll put something like meeting follow-up or project update and, you know, if everybody's doing that, you're not going to stand out. So actually make it a headline, like reconnecting on the next steps after the sales kickoff meeting is probably better than just say meeting follow-up. You know, Project X is on track, but we need to talk about budgets. So think about what an editor of a newspaper or a news website would actually put into the headline of their article and start thinking that when you're putting together your emails. I thought that a really good one as well. Again, your email opener must provide the context. And I guess that's building upon the first point when you've got to give yourself space to build the context in. Now, you don't want to give you your life history uh, you know, you don't want to turn them off by giving them too much, but it's absolutely important, especially if you're asking for a sale or if you're asking for more budget, whatever it is, is to give an adequate amount of context. Number th- number four, repeat a big idea throughout the email. Now, again, have you got the space to do that? Um, but make sure that whatever the email's about, whether it's about a sale, whether it's about a project, it's that big idea that's got to be the focus, and you're going to probably have to repeat it more than once in the email. And then the final one, again, not rocket science, always unveil your resolution <coughs> last. So if you want to get more money, you know, please approve this budget can I have your feedback on the project? I need a approval for a new hire. It's an obvious call to action, but sometimes we're so busy thinking about the context, we're so busy thinking about the headline that we don't actually think enough about what the call to action is, what the resolution is that we want people to come to. So 
back to basics a bit there, Pascal, I think. But I quite like articles like this, and this one wins extra points for the headline. I think I got sucked in by the reference to Facebook and Nestle there. I think you're right about this idea of uh, reminders, because if you think about email communication, I mean, I've been sending emails now since the uh, at least the mid to late 90s. And from that must come from some I'm going to call bad habits or habits that are just historical. And this idea of, you know, rethinking about how you formulate the way you start a, an email, but also how you close it, you know, things that maybe we need to just reflect on. Because I think that the, the, the other challenge with emails, Roger, is that we do tend, or I certainly would tend to want to get rid of them quickly. You know, your inbox is busy, the number is increasing day by day. And you want to get those emails out quickly to get a sense of satisfaction. But are you at the risk of, you know, compromising on the on the positive impact of those sentences and words you're, you're choosing carefully? Uh, I love the idea as well, the subject line to be more reflection of uh, what they, what someone can relate to as opposed to plainly stating a fact like follow-ups or, or that kind of things as well. Yeah, it's the, the headline one is absolutely key to me i think that's one that you can really think about you know think mm. newspaper headline you know you don't want it to be clickbaity obviously but i think it's very important to spend some time on the headline so once again pascal some really interesting content spotlights there shall we move on to the next section which is always a favorite and that is marketing tech and apps And in this part of the show, Pascal and I talk about marketing tech and apps that have caught our attention over the recent weeks. And each week we bring to the table one or two apps which will help to improve our productivity or just generally improve our business or even our personal lives. So, Pascal, what tech have you got for us this week? So this week, I'm going to continue my quest for knowledge and information about creating and delivering better online presentations. And I would really encourage people to watch the previous episodes of Two Geeks and Marketing Podcast. We've got some great ways for you to improve the way it looks, the way it sounds. And I want to talk to you today about Zoom. Uh, Roger and I have mentioned to each other that we wished we'd uh, bought some shares in Zoom uh, last year. But I would say that it's now become probably uh, the number one platform people make reference to when they, when they mean a video call. And I came across something called the Zoom Marketplace. So I suppose a bit of a cheat, Roger, because it's not one app. It's just a, you know, essentially treasure trove of apps that have been compiled by the team at Zoom called the Zoom Marketplace. And those apps can integrate with Zoom meetings and Zoom webinars to make your life easier as the account holder. And what I, what I will say is there are so many apps that luckily they've got a good search function. You can filter by categories from CRM integration to sales to marketing to video recording to transcription, you know, the long list of things you could do before, during, and after a Zoom call or a Zoom webinar. And my recommendation would be for someone to do two things. Number one, Roger, make a list of all the apps and software solutions you use right now for your business. And then go and find whether there is a Zoom integration that could make your life easier. That could include, for example, invoicing. That could include uh, Wix, uh, the website builder. There is a Zoom integration to do online courses. There's just so many options that really uh, is quite it's quite staggering. So, And then number two, having done this exercise, are there any 
is there anything else that you wish you could do with Zoom that perhaps an app can help you do? So the Zoom Marketplace is um, quite, quite a significant list of apps. So you could get lost in there. So I would say, number one, you, you go there with a, with a, a good plan of what you want to, to seek out. Otherwise, like me, you spend half a day going, oh, I didn't know this existed, but in fact, you don't need all of that. So that's number one. Number two, to make life easier, again, as a Zoom meeting webinar host, but Zoom meeting in particular, is a platform called Circles for Zoom. Now, you've been on many Zoom calls, uh, Roger. Do you know when sometimes you're trying to share a document or you're trying to view a document whilst also holding the meetings and, and visiting people? And sometimes the Zoom the window and the documents and the browsers, they kind of clash a bit and it's not as easy as it could be. Well, Circles with Zoom is a solution for that. I want you to imagine a situation when once you've opened a Zoom meeting and you've activated Circles for Zoom, all the people present on the Zoom call become little circles where you can see them, but they are essentially overlaid on top of your documents and browsers. So you can continue to work. You can continue to access your documents and go online and so on without necessarily having to forever to minimize or, or kind of move around the Zoom window. So circles with Zoom, they claim that this is the most beautiful way to experience Zoom. Wow. Well, I really like that circles idea. Mm -hmm. That's phenomenal, isn't it? I'm definitely going to get that. But yeah, the marketplace, again, I didn't even know that existed. I, I knew that Zoom had interactions with things like Calendly, for example. Uh, I use that for uh, booking appointments. But of course, yeah, I will be definitely dipping <laughs> into that. And as you say, probably disappearing down a rabbit hole as well. <laughs> so, you know, this week I was watching one of my travel vlogs that uh from a few years ago when i went with my wife on holiday to oman uh it's an it's one of our favorite travel vlogs and I, and i don't mind admitting that we often watch it together because it just reminds us of what it was like to go on holiday and to travel before the pandemic and as a result of that uh the, the apps and things that i've been looking at this week have been travel orientated maybe it's in the back of my mind that maybe back end of this year we might start to travel a little bit as well and the two apps i wanted to uh, draw your attention to today first of all one's called city mapper and i love the strap line making cities usable now in reality i think what they've done is they've managed to scrape in something like google maps or or the ios equivalent but the interface is so much more attractive it's very brightly colored and it's got lots of useful icons and it's as easy as just saying i want to go from that spot to that spot and it draws you a lovely little map of the route whichever you want to go by car by foot now obviously yeah you can do that in google maps and the equivalent on ios but this is just beautiful to look at and they put in these all these extra little tidbits of information that you just don't get on google maps so i i, I guess it's a sort of google maps souped up or a google maps mm. on steroids if you like <laughs> but i just i just loved the interface and again it's one of those things a bit like zoom marketplace you just start oh i wonder what where that part of Edinburgh to that part of Edinburgh, what it, which way it will tell me to go. So I, I really enjoy playing with that. So try City Mapper because it makes cities usable. Love that strap line. The second one, and 
this is where I'm thinking about maybe future trips to European and other cities. Now, none of us probably buy, you know, the, the big hefty paper guidebooks anymore. I mean, I certainly can't remember the last time I bought a city guidebook, but this brand, Triposo, and I, I'm assuming it's that's the correct pronunciation, Triposo, or is it Triposo? They have compiled the online equivalent of those big heavy duty sort of planet guides that you used to buy in the shops. And you can download each city as an app on your phone. So you could you'd be go to uh, Split in Croatia and download the Croatia app. You could be going to Paris in France and you could just download the Paris version. You get the you get the um, the gist. There's there's one of these apps for pretty much every major city in the world. And the information is is as you would expect it would be in one of those thick guidebooks. There's that much information in it. It doesn't matter whether you're young or old, business traveller or or personal travel, single traveller family, it will tell you everything you need to know, whether you're looking for restaurants, nightclubs, museums, how to use the metro if there is one, how to use the bus service or the trams. It's it's absolutely incredible the amount of detail that these things go into so triposo triposo however you pronounce it is the online equivalent of those big dead planet guides that we used to buy in the shops do you know these will make for wonderful resources as well from a customer service point of view if you're organizing an event in good time a mm-hmm. uh, real life event or if you want to talk about a city and pointing to those apps it would be just a wonderful thing to do yeah, yeah. I mean, if you you're organising a um, a conference in a city, just mail out the link for people to download that app, and you've given them all sorts of reasons to spend an extra few days in the city if they're coming to your event. So really, really interesting. And as I say, this was just triggered by uh, us watching a travel vlog. So slightly different this 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 uh, this week, but uh, it made it made me think. Wow. Maybe eventually we'll be back to traveling again. (laughs) So, Pascal, shall we fire up the time coordinates of the TARDIS? Shall we fuel up the flux capacitor in the DeLorean? Should we jump the time warps, get a little bit wibbly-wobbly timey-wimey and head back in time? How about we do This Week in History? And in 1776, Scottish economist and moral philosopher Adam Smith publishes the influential economics book, The Wealth of Nations. In 1857, the first department store elevator for passengers with automatic safety brakes was invented by Alicia Graves Otis, and it was installed in New York City. In 1936, the Indenburg makes its first official flight in Germany. The Indenburg, built by the Zeppelin Company, was 804 feet long, filled with highly inflammable hydrogen. And in 1969, the Boeing 747 flew its inaugural flight. The milestone ushered in the age of the jumbo jet. In 1979, Philips demonstrates the compact disc publicly for the first time. At the time of the technology's introduction to the market in 1982, a CD could store more data than a personal computer hard drive. In 2000, Julia Roberts became the first actress ever to command $20 million 
per movie for her role in Erin Brockovich. And what a film that was. In 2006, Jack Dorsey sends his first tweet, just setting up my Twitter, spelled T-W-T-T-R, which is the code name of the initial concept of sharing short messages via SMS with a small group. I didn't know that. And in 2018, SpaceX Falcon Heavy, a super heavy launch vehicle, made its maiden flight carrying Elon Musk's personal Tesla Roadster into space. (laughs) Well, we've got a real cornucopia of historical stuff there, haven't we? You know, the... um, the, the elevator, or uh, the lift for people who live in, the, in Europe, invented by Alicia Graves Otis. Now, do you know, when I, was a, when I was a lot younger, I was really quite obsessed with lifts or elevators. Okay. Um, bit, bit weird, this, but bear with me. Um, my mum and dad used to take us to Spain on holiday quite often, and the elevators in Spain were really a lot different to the ones that we had in the UK in that they had these doors that you had to physically open with your hands. They often had a, an oblong window in the uh, in the lift door as well. But the cool thing about the lift was there was no interior door that slid closed when the lift moved. So literally when this, wall, this big door banged closed and you press the button and the lift started going up or down, the wall in front of you, i.e. the door, would literally, it would be moving. There was no second door between you and the and the wall that you were moving up. And this was just so cool. As a six or seven-year-old, I just wanted to spend all day going up and down in these lifts. Now, I have been back to some of those hotels and buildings in Spain recently. And you know, I say recently, in the last 20 years. And whilst a lot of these buildings still have those incredible heavy doors with the oblong window they unfortunately now have the safety gate on the inside so you don't get that wonderful uh, sensation of seeing the wall moving up and down in front of you now this uh, was the same when i used to visit my grandmother in paris you know there was old fashioned lift with a kind of concertinaed you know kind of metal metal door and the racket it would make and the slamming it was the whole kind of ritual of taking the lift um, to go up you know to the top floor but in the case of um, otis of course this company still is um running today it's it's a oh, yeah. worldwide company many lifts that people go into when we do go back to buildings you can look and the letter otis as your present but in the case of this news this was the first one with the safety break which suggests that before lift did not have a safety break <laughs> which conjures up all sorts of horrible <laughs> images of the uh, of the car crashing all the way down to the bottom of the shaft and the hindenburg mm. was i guess the almost like the titanic of the airways wasn't it you know that incredible but sad footage mm. of the Hindenburg from around, I can't remember the exact date, it was around 1939 when it burst into flames coming into land in America. And literally within a minute, this entire gigantic uh, Zeppelin had burnt down and, the, and the, even the metal shell, the metal skeleton under the ferocious heat just completely collapsed and they did turn it into a into a film didn't they and and the, in the film they actually used some of the original footage it's one of those uh, iconic but really quite frightening 
views we have an, mm. of an actual disaster taking place. No, you're right. That, that footage is on TV. I think it's part of public domain nowadays. You, you could watch it online, but also many documentaries or, you know, it's part of, uh, yeah, those striking images that stays with you. Because I, th I think I first saw the footage on TV and you're right, it's quite a formidable sight. And uh, the Boeing 747, I think we've talked about the 747 before <laughs> in the news section, I think because it was being retired. So, you know, there's not that many 747s flying passenger duties anymore. I think Lufthansa is about the only airline still flying them. They're still in use in, in cargo. But the other one that stood out for me in the news this, was this, the CD. Hmm. You know, I mean, again, we've we've seen something throughout our lifetime, Pascal, that was invented and at the time was just revolutionary. The amount of of um, information you could store on a CD, and of course, the quality of the music you could store on a on a CD, and of course, now, forty odd years later, these things are obsolete almost themselves. Do you know what's interesting is uh, there is obviously uh, a renaissance, although it started some time ago, of people going back to the LP. And I've heard that cassettes are coming back in fashion. But I'm not hearing the same thing about CDs. There's obviously something that um, you know, people are not connected to the same degree emotionally than they are with LPs and, and, and cassettes. That's interesting, isn't it? I'm not quite sure what the motivation behind a renaissance of the cassette is, apart from people who want to put a, a pencil through the hole and twizz <laughs> it round to, to wind it back. I mean, I, I understand the nostalgia for vinyl because it had that quality about it. It's sometimes even the scratching in the background made was part of the experience. But cassette tapes, I'm really not quite sure what the what the uh, special attraction is there. And that first tweet, Jack Dorsey, spelling it T-W-T-T-R, do you think that was ever going to be the brand name for the for the social media platform? Well, the, the whole other journey, because we know that Facebook started as the Facebook, so I think there's always that kind of working title that people, um, and eventually they, they kind of see sense or they realise that we need to become more accessible. But you know, 15 years ago, 15 years, you know, so we're already moving into, you know, those social networks coming across as being old. And um, I, I think that certainly the, uh, for me, Twitter remains a very, very interesting social network that is still waiting for that success story, if that makes any sense. And, you know, I've mentioned this many, many times ago, but um, I just love the idea of somebody with a vision of, you know, a, a useful app and how it's kind of uh, grown from there. Like all of these social media platforms, it, it, it shouldn't aim to be the same as everything else. And mm. I know we've said that on the show many times before. So, Pascal, fabulous pieces of news. This, I mean, there's so much mm. geeky tech in there. <laughs> Airliners, Zeppelins, CDs. What a great nostalgia trip that was. So let's move on to our creator's shout-outs. And in this section of the show, Pascal and I give a shout out, usually to somebody within our close network, sometimes for people 
outside of our close network, but it's always a shout out for a particularly great piece of content. So, Pascal, who is your creator shout out for this week? So, Roger, this week I'm delighted to be able to mention to you the work of Neville Timeout and his colleagues. Now, Neville is the founder of New Results Training, they provide training courses and coaching sessions for sales professionals, but he's also been part of the team behind the International Men's Day events in Sunderland, been running now for two or three years. And this year, for this reason, they can't go ahead with an event as such. But what they've done is captured all the sessions from 2020 and make them available freely on an online platform. So the link is in the show notes. This was made possible thanks to the sponsorship of the Esh Group. Now, this the, the events that they organize is all about helping everybody men and women to essentially do better during these challenging times so you understand roger that the content is about around mental fortitude is about you know essential resilience it's about really finding ways as men and women to just cope a bit better during you know what we're all going through you've got three master classes you can access uh, free of charge i mentioned a moment ago you've got delve algeo who'll be talking to you about the importance of social connections and the positive impact it can have on you you've got dr to Ron Lawson exploring how we can work with our emotions better to make better decisions and Tony Wilson can help us spot more opportunities in this fascinating adventure we call life so it's a great resource and I wanted to kind of thank Neville Timer for taking the trouble to compile all this and make it available to all of us right now. That's really good Pascal and I, and I like the con connection with International Men's Day because my shout out has a connection with International Women's Day, oh, right. which actually was yesterday mm -hmm. in the in the timeline of the recording of this podcast. Now, my shout out this week is for Lindsay Mason. Lindsay does the marketing for one of my favourite financial advisor firms, Cura Financial Services. I've worked with Cura many times uh, and in a marketing capacity. They're a quirky firm. They do really fun things on their marketing and and they're, they're doing really really well now unfortunately Lindsay lost her mother last year and you know you can't begin to understand what that must have been like but she's tried to cope with her loss by doing a lot of fundraising for St Catherine's Hospice and I came across this yesterday on LinkedIn and Lindsay had posted a link to an article she'd written specifically because it was International Women's Day. And the article that, that Lindsay's written for a website called inspiringwomen.space really just explains the emotions and the feelings that she's gone through during this last 12 months. So, you know, it's, it's about grief, it's about loss, but then she weaves in this, this really quite uplifting story about how she's turned to helping the charity. And th there's not really a much else I want to say, Pascal, because you, you just really need to go and read it for the, you know, just the complete humanity of it. So that, that's all I'm going to say. The link is in the show notes. Lindsay Mason from Cura. And uh, it just, just really, really brought a bit of a tear to my eye, but also made me felt, feel really quite upbeat. So well, well done, Lindsay. It's really, really quite a tough article to write, I think. Fascinating. Once again, you know, we've not spoken to each other, but we chose two content creators who have been working very hard to improve uh, the life of others. And I, I just think it's wonderful. Pascal, it's that time. 
in the show when we put the film on. And this week, we've got to make a decision, haven't we? Do we take the red pill or do we take the blue pill? Shall we move into film marketing? Well, anybody who got the reference to red pills and blue pills will have recognised that this film, the one that we're going to talk to about today, is the classic from 1999, The Matrix. The first of the trilogy, probably, in my opinion, the best of the trilogy. But, do you know, there can't be what anybody in the world who hasn't woken up one day and looked around and, you know, just thought, what if this was some sort of simulation you know i I think back to the the days of um, star trek the next generation you know when they used to have the hollow deck and they used to be able to create a a fairground to go and play in or they could go and do a a sherlock holmes play or something like that i always thought that that was a really cool thing to do in your spare time but the matrix suggested that the entire world that we live in was fabricated was made up and that we were all, in fact, lying, curled up in sort of metal pods with things, uh, wires plugged into our bodies, effectively keeping us alive whilst we effectively dreamt our way through this weird existence. But the film was much more than just exploring that, quite frankly, mind-boggling concept. It also introduced special effects and techniques of slow motion that I don't think we've ever seen in cinema before. So it combined that incredible concept with amazing special effects. And, and to this day, it rem- it remains one of the most rewatchable science fiction movies of all time, in my opinion. And it does qualify as science fiction because what it does, and what science fiction movies do well, is that they are a commentary on a current life. So 1999, where, you know, bear in mind everything that we've covered in This Week in History was really the emergence of personal tech, you know, personal computers, mobile phones, you know, the people sent to listen to MP3s and iPods and so on. So there was this kind of real access to portable tech. Um, homes and businesses were obviously getting geared up. And this idea that in the future we're going to become the very batteries of the machines who have taken over, um, it's just a wonderful kind of exploration of, of a theme. That I don't add on to that to your point, the visual effects, you know, the storylines, the the language of the film, both in terms of the word they use, but also the clothes they wear, the choice of the colors, is just quite something. And you know what it is? I think it's also very, uh, for me, I take the view that it, it took place, that movie was an event really that took place in 1999 a year before 2000, you know, the start of a new decade, of a new century, if you want to look at it that way. Um, not just a year where I was able to listen to the Prince song 1999 you know, on repeat, but also I was wondering, you know, when I went to see this film, I went to see with a friend who had not been to the movies for quite some time. And he was completely blown away. I mean, I was as well, but, you know, I had obviously been watching movies for a while. I could see he just missed the last 10 years of movie production. And I wonder whether that was, you know, our version of Star Wars or Enter the Dragon or Blade Runner, you know, where people went to the movies and they left thinking, I have never seen anything like it in my life. Yeah, I mean, everything about it is just different and and iconic, you know, the the there's a lot of black in it, isn't there? Um, you know, the, the black shades that a lot of them are wearing. Most of the people have black 
their coloured hair. Um, there's a lot of long black coats. People are wearing black clothes. Some of those clothes are very tight and very leather. Um, it, th there's definitely that, and, and a lot of green as well, if I remember rightly. I guess the idea to conjure up in your head the old-style computer mm. screen, which was effectively black and green, wasn't it? And, and that was familiar, and yet they turned it again into something really quite different and really quite alien. So I think that they, they mixed the familiar with the, un, with the unfamiliar and made something completely iconic. The directors and the producers clearly declared their love of film and cinema. I mean, they also managed to pile into their films from their own childhood and teenagers and so on. And But it's not distracting. I mean, you will see the reference to Blade Runner. You will see the reference to Akira. You will see reference to manga and all the cyberpunk type uh, execution. But it's unique. You know, The Matrix actually uh, has informed, influenced other uh, movies, not the other way around. And and one of the things again when I'm I'm thinking back, imagine you were pitching this <laughs> to a studio and yeah. you said to them, What we're going to do is we're going to do a load of martial arts scenes in incredible slow motion. You know, they will said, Oh, that's not very exciting, is it? You know, martial arts is fast, you know, you think back to the Bruce Lee films and all of that, and yet this was so different, the way that they slowed everything down and it was all, and the way the bullets went, you know, it was just, again, you're right, I think, Pascal. It was so different that it was almost like a generation-defining experience for a lot of people. I went to see the movie several times. I mean, that year, 1999, I went three, four times easy with different friends and I enjoyed every single time. And, and what is interesting is there were some scenes that were truly iconic. So you mentioned bullet time a moment ago, but you've got, you know, the, when they jump and the cameras follow through, you've got scenes with um, the Oracle, you've got scenes in the train, the underground station, yeah. you've got scenes uh, when he's trying to escape, you know, is kind of on top of the building. Uh, it just goes on and on and everything you could pose and watch it. You could almost print it and frame it because it's just beautifully filmed. And some of the dialogue, you know, pretty much every line is quotable. You know, the aforementioned green pill, blue pill, free your mind, dodge this, there is no spoon. <laughs> Don't think you are. No, you are. You know, welcome to the real world. Um, every line is quotable. It's so good. Um, you know, and when you have something of quality like this, it, it, you know, that's why it does bear that repeated watching. You know, quite a lot of the films, I think, that we talk about on Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast are good enough to watch time and time again because no matter how many times you watch them you will always even 20 odd years later you will always find something whether it's a special effect whether it's a line whether it's an angle you'll always find something that you missed the previous oh, time you're absolutely right every single time because it's such a visually so rich but also the story is complex Let, let's not yep. you know uh, i think they yep. worked very hard on that they saw the characters so what i what i think worked really well with the first one is that the character of neo or thomas or mr anderson as you know agent smith calls him um you know is really discovering for the first time what we are discovering so is uh, it's really quite fascinating to see his journey and then his mentor you know morpheus lawrence fishburne but of course his sidekick as the trinity but also for me i loved you know I, although i was quite shocked because 
we'll come on to the marketing. The trailer didn't reveal too much. I mean, the trailer shared a lot of the action scene and the visual kind of uh, extravaganza, but they didn't share the story. But when you discover what really happens, and then he's rescued and moves on to you know the um, the ship, which um, can't remember what it's called anymore. Um, I think it's called the Abakanizer, but I could be wrong. And you've got the crew, you've got tank, you've got cipher, you've got mouse, you know, the the, the kind of craft ticket, you've got APOC. So it felt to me almost like uh, it was playing back to me the um, Treasure Island, you know, when you go onto the ship mm. and to an adventure. Yeah. So, yeah, again, the characters <laughs> are, are great. Keanu Reeves often, you know, accused of being a bit of a wooden actor. Arguably, this is one of these best roles, I think. Because uh, he's so believable, that sort of combination of total confusion, <laughs> but determination to understand what's going on. Uh, yeah, absolutely great. So the, what about the marketing? Because like a lot of films like this, it's difficult to not give the plot away in your advertising. What was interesting, if you back to 1999, there was a lot of movies being released that year, like every year. But this was the year where most of the nation was waiting for Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. That was the biggie. And we knew lots about it. There was a lot of marketing. The Matrix it was almost like this undercurrent where there was a very, very simple affair of a trailer, some teaser posters, and a lot of the um, kind of artifacts of the green screens of the symbols, which had elements of the Star Wars language to me, being shared uh, and downloadable as screensavers or desktops. You could kind of get a sense of what this was about. But there was a lot of mystery. And in fact, most of the campaign was simply, what is the Matrix question mark? Yeah, and the the, the more expanded uh, strap line in the trailer, which said, no one can be told what the Matrix <laughs> is. You have to see it for yourself. I mean, there can't be a more explicit invitation to go and see a film than that. But, you know, thinking about, you, you re referenced Star Wars, The Phantom Menace there. That got a massive amount of pre-publicity. Yeah. And if I, if, if I think the amount of publicity that Star Wars got, I would suggest that quite a high percentage of people who went to see Star Wars, The Phantom Menace, me included, came out pretty disappointed. You know, it just didn't live up to the reputation of the first three movies or the middle three movies, depending upon your viewpoint. And I particularly hated Jar Jar Binks. I thought he was just awful. And yet... With the Matrix, you know, much more low-key marketing campaign perhaps made people go to the cinema with less expectation, coming out utterly blown away with with what they'd seen. And I quite like that difference between maybe the overhype and the disappointment, and then the underhype of Matrix and the wow, what was that we just saw. You are absolutely right. I mean, for me, the reason I went to the Matrix, the trailer was obviously exciting, but the main thing was because of the fighting. I knew yeah. that action director Yoon Ping had been working on it, so that that was enough for me. If you, if you know enough about martial arts movies, Hong Kong movies, but also if you, I think, had we seen by then, um, Crouch and Tiger, Hidden Dragon, but, you know, all those movies. So we knew that this was the man to design incredibly, um, beautifully, you know, uh, designed action scenes. So. 
I was sold on the action director. Then I knew enough about the cast. I knew nothing about the directors and the producers. Um, and then I saw the trailer and I said, yeah, I would definitely spend, I don't know how much we paid back then in the movies, a tenor, to go and see these sci-fi movies. And left thinking, oh my God, when can I see this again? And um, in terms of 1999, this was a long movie. There's two, two hours and a quarter. And I'm, and I'm thinking back as well, because 1999, uh, we hadn't gone full internet yet. No. Um, mobile phones in those days were still quite large. I seem to remember I had one of the earlier Nokia flip phones. You know, I think I, I, I'm trying to remember when I got my first mobile phone. It was probably about 1995, 1996. So we're, we're still in the early days of some of the tech that we now take for granted. And I wonder whether the, the Matrix played a little bit on people's fears of emerging technology as well as the coolness that people often felt towards emerging technology. I would agree. I think the timing for thinking, you know, that, that there was um, the rising consumption and adoption of, of personal tech um, to the point where in the Matrix, you know, people get plugged in by shoving this really kind of impressive needle in the back of their their skull, um, perhaps predicting, you know, what will happen for us in, in 20, 30 years' time. So it's back to this idea of, you know, the human flesh being attacked by, you know, uh, tech and, and machine which I think is always quite quite unpleasant to, to explore. But I think, yeah, the timing, I think the directors used that, you know, to their advantage for sure. And again, like you've just said, how long will it be before some of this <laughs> or all of this becomes, a, I mean, we're, we're at the stage now where we can put on, you know, um, virtual reality goggles. Now, the world we see in re virtual reality goggles is not quite yet and a total approximation of the world that we are living in. But, you know, will there become a day when the, the science of the matrix actually becomes a reality? And, you know, again, it could be another science fiction film that people get to a certain age and then they get taken off the streets and plugged into a database somewhere and then their consciousness carries on watching a movie of the world. I, I don't know, but it's... Uh, I love that movies like this because they're at once science fiction, but they're just they're just over the line, aren't they? They're just over the line, and it's very very possible that what they're showing us is going to be a reality before we know it. Yeah, and just to kind of um, close on that, you know, so this movie was released. Let's be clear, twenty one years ago, and is still is still stacking up. You know, as in it can be watched. I don't think the special effects have aged that much. I think people, if they were to discover for the first, I would be impressed with the set design, with the costume design, with the the music, with the action, with the storytelling. It is a love story, uh, after all, a sort of redemption as well. As and uh, I just think that it's um, an impressive a bit of work and a bit of um, cinema moment. And I'm just pleased that I was around to queue up and and watch it like I did. Yeah, absolutely right. Do you know, Pascal, I think I'm going to go and have to plug myself in. <laughs> and like a lot of the times when we talk about a film on this podcast, sometimes I've watched it again to prepare for the discussion that we have. Sometimes, like you, we talk about a film where I'm so 
comfortable with talking about it. I don't need to watch it again. But often our conversation actually prompts me to go and watch it again. So let, let's draw the conversation to a close. Another great film, another great discussion. We've covered some incredible tech today and some incredible content. So everyone, thank you so much for watching the show. Thank you for listening to the show. And do please subscribe. And do please leave us comments in all the usual places, wherever you consume your videos and your podcasts. Until next time, go out there and make sure your marketing is done right. I was Roger Edwards, and he was Pascal Fintoni. Mm-hmm.